just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to the latest installment of Money Management. We are your antidote to conventional wisdom. My name is Mike Mayo, and we're all set for another hour of financial news, a recap on what's been going on in the world of economics, and most importantly, how it all might affect you. We'll be talking about things going on in the stock market uh, most recently. Uh, then the question that seems to be coming up is, well, should I buy bonds or bond funds? We'll look at the pros and cons of both of those. Some comments about uh, what's going on in the economy, generally speaking, and then some overall perspectives about it all. To begin, let's see what uh, the indices ended with in our short day on Friday. The Dow closed the week at 34,347. It was up 152 points. The uh, S&P about unchanged at 4026. The Nasdaq closed down just a bit at 11,226. The uh, Russell 2000 at 1869. All four of those, however, up week over week. We've had uh, gold at $1,754 an ounce and silver at $2,131 an ounce. Crude uh, slipping lower on uh, concerns about if China's ever going to get out of its own way with their COVID stuff. Uh, it's at $76.62 a barrel. Ten-year Treasury down to 3.68% and soft light. We did eight ninety one a bushel. You know, November from, what, let me try it again, Mike. Uh, November to January is historically the best period for the markets, and uh, certainly that seemed to have been proved out so far. Since 1950, at least, the year after midterm elections, and that would be 2023, has delivered stronger performance than other years, regardless of how the elections came out. And uh, just as a, uh, for for those of you who are market uh, uh, historians, on November 23, 1954, the Dow closed at a record high of 382. Yes, 382. Well, the, the reason it's mentioned is that it finally surpassed its previous high set 25 years earlier on September 3rd, 1929. Gives you some idea about how depressing the actual depression was. Well, this market this week was helped by the release of the Fed's minutes. This was for the central bank from the central bank's most recent meeting. And the meeting notes indicate that some members inside the Fed are having concerns about the pace of the hike uh, rate hikes, especially after having raised it four times in a row at 75 basis points or three quarters of 1%. So we'll see if indeed uh, that will happen. This will have another meeting here in a couple weeks time. And uh, the uh, consensus is you may see another 75 points because they already said it that it could happen, but if it goes to a half a percent, that would be good too. Now, let's just keep this in perspective because uh, based on how the media presents all this stuff, uh, you probably have missed this. The Dow, uh, is just since last month, is up 5,000 points. It's up 19.3% from its lows. And the S&P, 62% of the S&P 500 stocks, are already up over 25, 
20% from their lows. And Tuesday, the S&P closed above 4,000 for the first time in a couple of months. And it went even higher on Wednesday and, yes, even higher on uh, Friday. And the S&P recently broke above its 50-day moving average, and it's only 1% away from its 200-day moving average. And those moving averages are benchmarks that traders use to predict short-term market moves. So those are both positive trends. And let's see here. Oh, yes, uh, the S&P is 9.1% above its 50-day moving average. So uh, the trend is the friend, as we like to say, and it looks as if we're go going well. And, you know, it, in my opinion, folks should be continuing to be spending more time looking for stocks to buy than looking for stocks to sell. You can see these stocks are all going higher. Uh, and again, it can turn in on, a, you know, on a dime or a penny or something, but it can turn quickly for sure. But the list of stocks in these uptrends is getting longer, not shorter. The list of stocks making new lows, however, is extremely short at this point, and that's not what you see in bear markets. As far as uh, sectors that look, uh, well, as if they're participating, you have energy, healthcare, financials, industrials, materials, all trading above their 200-day moving averages. And uh, I think it's safe to say if it's above uh, its 200-day average, then it's probably not in the downtrend. And if you look at three uh, of the major, what would I say, indices tracking uh, the markets, the S&P 500, let me back up, the ETFs uh, tracking the S&P 500 um, have 26% in technology and only 5% in energy. In the Dow, it's 19% tech and 3% energy, and in the NASDAQ, it's 49% tech and 0% energy. So if you think you're participating in the energy sector even remotely by participating in those uh, particular uh, indices, mm -mm. you're not in one of the best performing sectors of the marketplace. And, you know, just uh, as an aside, the market is, well, will be dominated not by election results, but by fundamentals. Election results are unlikely to have an effect on interest rates or corporate profits. Remember, whether you are happy or mm, distraught about election results, don't let it cloud your investing judgment because they are not directly related. And certainly, uh, I think it's safe to say that for folks who are have been in the market uh, all this year, uh, Holding stocks and bonds, it hasn't been a lot of fun, but there's one silver lining I think you can look at is that dividend payouts are at an all, at all-time highs. They're up 6.7% in the third quarter, $146 billion in the U.S., up 7% globally. So uh, things are going well. You know, it's nice to have to get paid rent for uh, holding some of these things. And historically, you've seen dividends... Uh, outperform uh, the rate of inflation by a significant number. And domestically, in other words, in the U.S., financials, which have accounted for almost 40% of the growth in those dividends, it made its largest single contribution to the group. Internationally, oil companies, their record profits, a large measure of dividend growth. And excluding the effect of the strong dollar, international dividend growth uh, was even stronger in the third quarter, expanding by 10%. So, Dividend payers and stocks that have uh, dividend growth potential, I think, are worthwhile considerations for your holdings. 
Now, I do want to segue into the uh, bounds world just for a short minute. Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in bonds as a majority holding in your whole portfolio for long-term investing because stocks outperform it. I don't care about year to year. I'm talking about long term. And so, uh, but as you do need, you should have in your portfolio some bonds uh, in order to provide you good asset allocation and balance overall. So, you know, do you buy the bond funds or do you buy individual bonds? Now, if you buy an individual bond, and you hold it to maturity, in other words, when it comes due, you will receive regular income payments based on the yield you bought it and when you bought it. Now, the key when you're buying an individual bond is the yield to maturity, the YTM that may show up on your confirmation. That's what you're really going to earn on that piece of money until you get your money back. Now, if you sell it before maturity, that'll change that number. But assuming you hold it for the whole time, that's what you want to know. And at maturity, you get all your money back, the uh, money that you invested, unless it was a premium bond where you won't get all your money back, but that's another conversation. But that's still a good thing. So a bond is simply a debt, so that makes sense. Now, if you put $10,000 in a five-year treasury yielding 4%, and the 10-year right now is at 37 so let's just round it off. So you would receive a couple hundred dollars every six months, and your initial 10000 five years from now, uh, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, and the reason so many people like holding bonds uh, like this is because they know exactly what they're going to get and when. So even if rates move up or down in the meantime, you can wait out those fluctuations and still receive your par value, in other words, the face amount at maturity. And after experiencing big losses in their bond funds this year, many investors are wondering if they would have been better off holding those individual fixed income securities. You know, um, again, it's simple enough when you own a, a regular individual bond. You know, you money in, interest every six months usually, and then you get your money back at maturity. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but then again, you know, it, we're back to the, should we go into bond funds? And after experiencing big losses in their bond funds this year, and most folks do use bond funds, and whether funds as such or as ETFs, uh, many investors are wondering if they would have been better off holding those individual bonds. You know, it sounds like a good idea at first look, but maybe not so much uh, when you check it in reality. Well, why is that? Well, bond funds literally hold individual bonds that are what's called mark-to-market every day. In other words, they actually put the what you could sell them for at any uh, that day. So you get a realistic uh, view of what that portfolio is worth. So how can a fund of bonds be better or worse than an individual bond? Well, getting your money back at maturity is might be an emotional hedge, but it's not like you're any better, worse, jeepers, Mike, any better or worse off. If when rates go up, the value of all bonds, all bonds, regardless of credit quality, length of time to maturity, uh, issuer, any of that, the value of all bonds goes down, again, whether you're holding an individual bond or a bond fund. Now, conversely, when rates go down, the values of all of those would tend to rise, as they did for the previous 40-some-odd years. Well, 
holding the maturity does allow you to get your principal back uh, in an environment of higher rates and inflation you'll still be getting back nominal dollars in other words your face amount dollars that are worth less that, that than at the time of maturity for example let's say you own a bond fund that is paying you two percent and rates go to four percent okay if the duration of those bonds is five years your fund principal would drop about 10% in value, and that's, I won't say guaranteed, but pretty dang close. Um, and so say for the, just to take this a little bit further, say you then decided to sell the bond fund, but then buy all the individual bonds in that fund, which now collectively yield 4%, and hold them to maturity. Well, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. So are you better off now or not? Well, no, because you actually you're in the same place. Say you own just one 2% five-year bond and rates go to four. Sure, you get your money back at uh, maturity, uh, but now you're earning 2% less per year than the current market rate of 4%. So again, you could sell that 2% bond at a loss, move up to that 4% interest, uh, but you're going to lose principal value if you sell or the income you hold that bond that pays a lower rate. So it's just how bond pricing works. There's no free lunches in that stuff. And having said all that, there's still some pros or cons of each approach because of how most bond funds are managed. If you buy individual bonds, you it requires typically more money uh, because you're buying, bonds trade in increments of $5,000. Okay, and that's a very small amount, but that's, I mean, in the bond world, that's almost no meaningful figure. But the, that's how they trade. And it, so it makes it much harder to diversify your portfolio and it therefore much harder to rebalance your portfolio. It can in, in offer you some peace of mind about interest rate changes, uh, even if it's more emotions than math. But, and it can make it easier to match your assets with liabilities. Now, if you're buying the individual, if you're buying bond funds, you get professional management, economies of scale in terms of trading costs because they're putting a whole lot of money to work. So you, you can imagine that their costs go way down. Offer lower minimums to invest. Typically, a bond fund can be purchased for $1,000 increments. It makes it easier to diversify and rebalance. Yep. Doesn't guarantee all bonds will be held to maturity because there's turnover. That's what a fund does. They, as uh, bonds come due or they sell them for whatever purpose, you know, they get reinvested. So that changes the overall yield to some extent and can make it more difficult to match assets with liabilities because it's a more amorphous kind of mass you're dealing with. So there are some differences. It probably really depends on how comfortable you are in buying individual fixed, in secure, fixed income securities, how dependent you are in giving yourself an emotional hedge into individual bonds. And quite frankly, most investors don't have the ability to do that because in terms of competitive yields for individual bonds versus bond funds, higher yield almost always means higher risk. See, when you buy an individual bond fund that... Uh, can have a higher yield than the individual bond. It may be the fact you're buying a, this whole pool of bonds, which, uh, again, uh, don't have one rate of return. So your overall return can be higher and your risk somewhat minimized simply because of the diversification aspects. So there is, once again, there's no 
wrong answer. It's just what do you feel more comfortable with? And quite frankly, what can you afford to do? So a gentle segue over to the economy in general. You know, we've been uh, hearing for a long time about the big tech companies uh, with their hiring freezes and layoffs. Well, it's important to understand that all the tech layoffs we're reading about are not a sign of overall widespread layoffs coming. Because among other things, tech represents a very small share of total employment in the U.S. A lot of it may be because they're more efficient because they're tech, I don't know. But 1.3 million layoffs in a single month represents just nine-tenths of 1% of total employment. Now, it means 100% to one of those folks who got hit by the layoff. I appreciate that. But in the big picture of how markets work, it's pretty much non-eventful. And employers, U.S. employers, uh, have been announcing a little over a million layoffs per month for a long time, many months. That's a seemingly high number, but even that represents a little under 1% of total employment. And that number has been below pre-pandemic levels for months. The economist at Goldman Sachs uh, put out a note this past week. It said that job openings, job openings in the tech industry remain high. So that means that laid-off tech workers, perhaps not those from the Bluebird uh, uh, online system, uh, but laid-off tech workers are entering a market full of opportunities where they can continue using their skills. The economists also observed that tech layoffs don't necessarily mean job losses are about to spike across the economy. Now, from their note, and I'm quoting this from Goldman Sachs, we also currently see no indication that layoffs are rising significantly in other industries as overall layoff announcements and initial claims both remain comfortably below their historic averages. The main problem, in their view, is that labor market demand is too strong and not too weak. I don't know. That's not a terrible thing to be uh, having, in my opinion. But I'm not an economist. So, what about inflation? Yes, that gets in the news every now and again, doesn't it? And one of the reasons the market started to turn up is that the perception is that peak inflation may likely be behind us. Uh... Producer prices have been rising at a slower pace over the past three and six months period. Now, let the record reflect. Prices still remain 8% above, um, the, excuse me, remain at 8%, well above the 2% rate that the Fed would like to have. And most Fed Reserve initi- uh, officials in their most recent meeting said they should slow the pace of rate increases um, going forward. Again, stay tuned. But uh, the rate of consumer inflation peaked at 9.1% in June, and it slowly declined over the last four months. For the 12 months ending in October, it was at 7.7%. On a percentage basis, that's pretty huge. We are uh, seeing perhaps peak inflation. Uh, The producer price index has been rising at a slower pace. Uh, As I say, the prices are still up 8% versus the 2% target. But the the consumer inflation at 7.7 at the end of October, down from 9.1 earlier. Now, some research from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the Economic um, Council, and Harvard 
had came up with some uh, perceptions. It says here, and I'm quoting, our analysis of the relative importance of supply-side versus demand-side factors finds 60% of U.S. inflation over the 2019-21 period was due to the jump in demand for goods, while 40% owed to the supply issues that magnified the impact of this higher demand, unquote. In other words, stuff that isn't in the system now. I mean, those, you know, the the government fire hose of money, that's been turned off. Um, the supply chains we'll talk about here in a minute are getting a lot better. Uh, so the main drivers of what we're dealing with right now have been, if not eliminated, certainly mitigated. Uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve President James Ballard recently said, and I'm quoting, the change in the monetary policy stance appears to have had only limited effects on inflation, but market pricing suggests disinflation is expected in 2023. Now, the market expects, now I'm talking about the futures market, uh, expects a top-end rate for Fed uh, rate hikes to be about 5%, which is not a whole lot higher than where it is right now. Now, some other uh, positive notes toward uh, inflation. Now, this, I was not aware that this was an index, but anyway, the Mannheim used car index is now down 14% over the past year. That's the largest year-over-year -year decline uh, going back to, I guess, when it started in 2009. Now, this was a leading indicator of higher inflation rates in 2020, and this recent downturn is likely a leading indicator of lower inflation rates to come. Another big positive on the inflation front comes is that fertilizer prices, in other words, kind of one of the base costs of your foods, peaked in late March and are down 39% since. They're at the lowest since September of 2021. And as I say, that's great news because of their high correlation to food prices. And global container freight rates, you know, all the ships that were parked outside of uh, San Diego, Long Beach, etc. Um, they're at a 20, the rates are at a 23-month low. That's down 73% from the peak. Now, the bad news is it's still two times higher than pre-pandemic levels, but they're moving in the right direction. And it means that there aren't as many um, infused costs into this stuff that we're getting from overseas. Now, on the other side, dwindling stockpiles of diesel fuel have driven the diesel fuel prices to a record premium over gasoline and crude oil, which showing how weather and politics have... Uh, cause disruptions to the globalized energy markets and they're still producing price shocks and these potential shortages. While the price of gas is up about 14% so far this year, diesel is up about 50%, right around 5.36 a gallon according to AAA. Now, the gains widen the gap between the two to an all-time high of $1.60. Last year, the difference between gasoline and, and, and um, diesel was 23 cents. You know, so you're having a ripple effect on costs. Think of all the things that get transported by rail and trucks. Can you say everything? So if you're having a high cost there, <laughs> that is not a good thing. So uh, 
certain governments need to make uh, changes in the energy policy so that we can get things back to normal. Now, the producer price index, that measures inflation at the what they call the wholesale level, at the manufacturing level, was up two-tenths of a percent uh, versus four-tenths, yeah, which was what was expected. That's the first decline in two years. Now, again, wholesale inflation is running at 8%, but it's uh, better than 84 that it was running at as of the end of September. The uh, store shelves are laden with stuff. Retailers are dangling discounts to lure shoppers in. You know, it's a reflection of how the combination of supply chain mess-ups and stepped-up demand for goods that push prices sharply higher is, in fact, beginning to unwind. And it's also one of the reasons that inflation could cool significantly in the months ahead. And you're reading, too, now a lot about consumer debt and how folks are uh, using more credit cards, etc., etc. Well, once again, you got to read past the headlines in these stories, okay? The bulk of consumer debt has always come in the form of mortgages. That's 70%, 70% of total debt. Credit card debt, as of the end of the third quarter this year, was just 6% of total household debt. Okay, here's a test. What's the historical average for credit card debt in relation to total debt? Mm, 6%. So, we're right on average. Credit card debt has been relatively stable at this number since about 2010. It got as high as 10% in 2003. Now, retail sales jumped up a bunch in October. Uh, Consumers spent more on gas, food, and big-ticket items such as furniture and cars. Um... Nine of the 13 retail categories grew in October. Now, one of the problems is is that one of the key drivers of overall spending is, in fact, inflation. Consumers are spending more, but they're not taking home as much stuff. Overall retail sales are up 8.3% from a year ago, but inflation up 7.7% says that that gain in spending, uh, retail spending is sales, more correctly, sorry, uh, is not perhaps as significant as it may have seemed to be. And loose monetary policy, uh, which helped finance this big increase in government spending, is translating into high inflation which is why the real, when you adjust for inflation, retail sales are just slightly higher. And finally, a little quick note on real estate. The average interest rate on a fixed 30-year mortgage is about 6.6%. That's a decline of 47 basis points from the week before when it was at 708. And according to Freddie Mac, the mortgage lender, they suggested inflation may have reached a peak. Housing starts in October dipped 4.2%, still better than the uh, to 1.42 million, They're better than what was expected, again, according to Dow Jones. And finally, housing permits dipped 2.4% to 1.5 million in October, um, 1.52 million in October, which is better than the 1.5 million expected, again, according to Dow Jones. So, We've got a lot of trend things going, and the problem is, you know, like they always say about turning that aircraft carrier, it doesn't turn on a dime, and neither does a huge economy. So while we're turning off a lot of the things that have been pushing inflation all this time, uh, it's still having a ripple effect, and it's going to take a while for it to get totally through our system. So do not, uh, how would I say, 
have bad thoughts about the future. Things are trending higher. And that gives me a little segue into my next segment. I'm talking about overall perspectives here. You know, because one thing that humans do, for reasons best known to humans, is to take what's happened in the recent past and project it indefinitely into the future. And now with the news cycle being instantaneous, the problem's only gotten worse. It used to feel like the recent past went back as far as a couple years. Now it seems as if it can only last a couple minutes. We think if things are going terribly, they're going to continue being terrible forever. If your portfolio value seems to be dropping, and I hear this from people, it's tempting to say, at this rate, if this continues, I won't have any money, pick your time, from now. Well, on the other hand, if things are going well, we expect them to continue going well forever. If every, you know, And think of that as uh, like uh, 2021. At the end of 2021, uh, we'd had, what, three or four years of really good markets? Well, why wouldn't that continue? Mm, well, look around. I guess you can see where there are reasons that that would have occurred. Well, this phenomenon has a, has a name. It's called recency bias. And, and the only solution I've come up with is to lengthen your definition of the recent past. As they say, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You know, we do well to make our memories go back a little bit further than what the common goldfish is capable of. That way we may find ourselves uh, recalling a time when we didn't get what we had anticipated or the market was better or whatever financial boon or burden we need to keep in mind is a distinct possibility. Now, if we can do that, we stand a much better chance of not following it, falling into the same traps over and over again. Now, the new lows list, that is to say the number of stocks hitting new lows, peaked in June. And the latest from the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey shows the consensus view is looking for below-trend economic growth and above-trend inflation. Now, these guys, in my opinion, are simply headline followers. So it's all nice, and that's good, but that's just somebody else's opinion. Well, here's another one. Dr. Ed Yardini of Yardini Research said that the October 12th low was the bottom and that the S&P could rise to near 4,300 by the end of the year. And for your reference, the index sits right now about 4,025, so that's not that far away. And what he said was, it, what's making the big difference in the market is the resilience of the economy. It's been spectacular. He goes on to say, everybody's been debating whether we're going to have a soft landing or a hard landing. Meanwhile, there's no landing whatsoever. The consumer didn't get the recession memo, and they keep spending, unquote. You know, pessimists <laughs> seem like they're clever and sophisticated. But if you want to make money, please take my advice. Invest like an optimist. I'm not talking about crazy, wild-eyed optimists who are flailing, oh, I don't know, cryptocurrencies or meme stocks or fringe uh, blue-chip issues. Instead, I'm talking about a fundamental belief that, as has been shown historically to be true, economic setbacks are temporary. The future will be better than the past. Struggling to stay positive among uh, this year's rotten markets? Well, I got some reasons for optimism. While o October's inflation report and the stock market's modest bounce have offered glimmers of hope, the mood remains grim. 
This disinterest bordering on despair has helped to further depress stock and bond prices. There's certainly none of the rampant enthusiasm for stocks that we saw last year. And that's good news for those folks who are courageous and have the cash to invest. You know, the Contra people buying when nobody else is. Expected returns are rising because as stock and bond prices fall, the outlook for future returns gets better. The clearest example, check out what's happened to the yields on a 10-year inflation-protected securities, a.k.a. TIPS. Today's buyers of those uh, 10-year TIPS are getting a whole 1.6% plus an adjustment to reflect inflation. A year ago, they were getting an adjustment for inflation of minus 1.1%. So whatever bonds return, stocks should be priced to return even more. That's why investors take the extra risk involved. Excuse me. Investment taxes are modest. The bond tax code favors investors. For those investors through a uh, in a regular taxable account, not a retirement account, in other words, both qualifying dividends and long-term capital gains are taxed at barely half your federal income tax rate. Plus, you can defer any capital gains until you actually realize your gains. That's code for selling. Meanwhile. Tax-favored investment accounts abound, including tax-free Roth and 529 college accounts. And we all want better. The final point is the most nebulous, but it's also the most important. Every day, folks around the world wake up trying to figure out how to make life better for themselves and those they love. We all benefit from that energy that's unleashed. That's one big reason why stocks go up. Workers hunt for jobs that'll pay them more. Businesses fight to stand out in their battle with competitors. Uh, who are complacently passing along higher costs, and once again, we all benefit. Now, as an aside, uh, because of this kind of uh, pessimistic uh, recency bias that seems to be in evidence, uh, some retirement savers are seeking out safe havens within their 401k plans, but the move may hobble them in the long run. In fact, may have done so just in the last month. Investors sold out of their target date funds and large-cap U.S. stock funds in October in favor of quote-unquote safer ones, such as stable-value money market bond funds. This according to Alight Solutions, and they administer company 401k plans. For example, stable-value and money market funds captured 81 and 16% of net investor funds in October. This according to Alight. And investors have favored fixed income during 73% of total trading days throughout this year. Well, selling out of stocks while the markets are down is, in fact, timing the market. In order for you to come out ahead, investors need to time two things perfectly. One, when to sell. Two, when to buy back up. No, buy back in. And that's nearly impossible to do consistently, even for professional investors. In other words, a knee-jerk reaction to what you think is, uh, to, to protect your money uh, means you may, in many cases, actually do the opposite, sacrificing your future earnings and ultimately ending up with a much smaller nest egg. Now, you may recall that in 2018, we had two rather big market corrections. And in that period, the average investor lost twice as much as the S&P 500. Then prioritizing the avoidance of loss over earning a gain is a major reason why so many investors underperform the market. Having a long-term focus can potentially smooth negative or low-returning years with high ones. 
and since we know market tends to go up over time, your chance of losing money should decline the longer you stay invested. And I'm not just making this up, because if you look at history going back to the start of the S&P in 1957, the S&P 500 actually, the data show that you would have invested in a fund that tracked the S&P for any five-year period from then until today, your chance of losing money was approximately just 10%. So 90% positive. But for longer term periods, over five years, the chance of a positive return was even higher than 90%. If you, For instance, you had a 99.88%, I'd call that just about 100, of achieving a positive return when you invested in the S&P for 15 years or longer during any 15-year period from 1957 to include this year. That's because for every 15-year period, the chance of negative return was only 0.1%. But it's prudent to remember that all investments do involve risk and may lose money. You know, the old uh, past returns are no guarantee of future results kind of thing. And so here we are, you know, uh, with these uh, stocks. Just to give you a kind of a reinforcement of how the stocks have turned and aren't getting the uh, press. 19 stocks in the S&P hit 52-week highs this past week, and of those, uh, 16 of them touched all-time highs. General Parts Company, highest since 1948. Um, TJX, all-time high back to 1987. Here's a good one. General Mills, all-time highs back to 1927. Pepsi, uh, going back to uh, their merger with Frito-Lay in 1965. Uh, Travelers Insurance, a high going back to 2002. Packard, the truck company, all-time high going back to 1971. Great stuff, folks. Be looking on the positive side. The old, the looking backwards and is not the best way to invest. So I hope you have a positive and productive week. We'll have a uh, be back here next Saturday with more market-related news. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Money Management, powered by the Opus 111 Group. My name is Mike Mayo. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Money, money, money.